This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martirano. I hope you're joining us each week as we speak with lots of different sorts of people, experts very often, in the field of behavioral health. The idea, of course, is to foster diverse and meaningful conversations on both substance abuse and mental health issues. You know, I say very, uh, very frequently, almost all the time, when we have somebody on who has been down a, a, a dark road regarding substance abuse and mental health issues, that all those stories are the same, except they're different. Well, that's never been more true than today. Our guest is um, uh, Al uh, Zot, uh, I'm sorry, Zolak. Al Zolak. I, sh- I should know that by now. Uh, Al Zolak. Big Al, as he is affectionately known by the many, many people he's come in contact over the year. Uh, he's got a fascinating story. Al grew up uh, loving basketball. We're going to find out about that. He, um, he turned that love into a, a career in basketball. Uh, through his high school and college years, and then in uh, in his role as a professional basketball player. Uh, Al was a member of the legendary Washington Generals. For those of you who might not know, the Generals were the traveling exhibition team who played night after night to the world-famous legendary Harlem Globetrotters. It's a, um, a singular achievement that resulted, in Al's experience, of losing 425 basketball games for the entire 1974-75 season as a member of the Generals playing against, as I said, the Harlem Globetrotters. The story, though, is about Al's rebound, if you'll pardon the pun there, from a very serious substance abuse problem and the work that he has devoted himself to for the past 30, over 30 years now, counseling young people to uh, try to avoid those mistakes that Al made. Big Al Zolak is our guest on Recovery Radio. Uh, Al, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Sal and I, uh, Al and I uh, ran into each other many, many years ago in another incarnation. He was on the show uh, talking about this story, and we reconnected recently. Uh, Al reached out, and I'm grateful for that because this story is really, really fascinating. Al, tell us about um, Al Zolak and Begin begin with basketball. How how soon were you bouncing a ball in the backyard? Well, I, I really started in about fourth or fifth grade, and it's kind of funny because uh, I was uh, going from uh, Cub Scouts to Boy Scouts, and what I used to do is I would dress, uh, put my gym stuff underneath my uh, Boy Scout uniform, and I would instead of going to the meetings, I would go and play in a league in Woodbury, New Jersey, and. Uh, my mother found out about it because I had my name in the paper for scoring four points, <laughs> and uh, that's when I sat down with her and told her I didn't want to be a Boy Scout, you know, I wanted to play basketball. And I went from there, went to high school. My freshman year, coach kept me around because I was funny. I, uh, I never played. My junior year, sophomore year, I was 17th man on a JV team. Junior year, dressed varsity, played two-quarters JV. And then my senior year, I became the star of the team because I didn't give up, and I worked hard over the summer, lifting weights and running steps and all these things that you need to become a better ball player. And, um, I, and it enabled me to go to college, and I went to a junior college for two years, and uh, we were third in the East in junior colleges. That's Atlantic Community College in Mays Landing, New Jersey. And then I transferred to a place called Glassboro State, which is now Rowan University, where we were uh, went to the national championships two years in a row. And then I had a tryout with the uh, Scranton Apollos, which is an Eastern League team, which was the minor leagues to the NBA, and I made it to the last cut. And after I got cut from there, I decided to, uh, you know, I ran into a connection. I took a young boy from Glassboro 
to see the Globetrotters at the Spectrum that year, and I ran into a guy named Gene Hutchins from Atlantic City, and he was playing with the Globetrotters, and he told me who to contact. I contacted Red Clots, the coach of the Generals, and I went down, tried out in Atlantic City, made it, and I went around the, the world with them for a year, uh, October 15th to April 15th, throughout the United States and Canada, and then April 16th, we flew to Copenhagen. We were in Sweden, Denmark, Belgium, Italy, and England, playing seven nights a week wherever we went. And we did have a record of no wins and 245 losses. You made it a little bit worse when you said you said 400 and some. But, uh, you know, no wins and 245 losses. And, you know, that was, uh, there's a lot of factors involved, though, Steve, that oh, we yeah. couldn't possibly win. The officiating was terrible, by the way. And, uh, you know, uh, we would drive to a basket and we'd get killed, no foul called. We'd breathe on them. A foul would be called. And then, matter of fact, Steve, over in Italy, you'll like this, we had a fist fight with the Globetrotters on the basketball court. So okay, you guys- one of their guys went in. Yeah, one of their guys went in for a lap, got fouled. Our guy fouled him. He turned around, punched our guy in the mouth. Both benches <laughs> cleared. We're fighting on the court. The people in the stands were clapping because they thought it was part of the show, but it was real. Well, you know, <laughs> for people who might not know, I mean, the Globetrotters are internationally famous and have been for you know decades now. Um, they played before uh, every, every every conceivable audience you can imagine, including, I'm told, um, the uh, the Pope on occasions would be yeah. in attendance at Harlem Globetrotter games. They were real ambassadors, not only of the game of basketball, but they they were iconic as an American institution. So for people who uh, who might not understand the way it worked, I mean, the generals were were they were the foil for this team. It was um, fun to watch the Globetrotters go off on the generals. But I am really interested in what the – you guys were – did you guys try to win or did you know you weren't supposed to win? No. Without without a doubt, we did. You know, this is how it worked. You know, uh, uh, they would do their – they would get the tip in the, in the beginning of the game, do their weave, and we would let them get a basket. They had about 10 show plays that we'll call them. And on each one of those show plays, they got a basket. So that's 10 baskets, 20 points. We're spotting them 20 points a game. Okay. You know, wait. Let me, then, wait uh, let, me, let me let me stop you for you. So that was scripted. You guys understood. This is the game. They're going to run their weaves and their drills, and uh, they're going to do their dribbling, and they're going to do all that crazy passing, and they're going to score twenty points. And then, what what was the deal? You would settle down and try to and try to play the game. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. It was very very competitive. Uh, the one rule was I found out, uh, you know, when I was with them for a little bit that uh, you weren't allowed to go near Metalark. Metalark was the big star. Metalark uh, Lemon. I blocked. Yes, I blocked one of his shots, and I got yanked out of the game, and uh, Red Clot said to me, don't you ever <laughs> go near that guy again. But, you know, So they let one guy, Sam Sawyer, guard him. and uh, But everything was relatively, really competitive, and uh, we they used to have to tell us when they were hanging microphones from the ceilings of the gyms because we'd have to watch our language because right. we, we, we would be going back and forth. Yeah. yeah, it takes a certain kind of individual to be able to, you know, take their skills – and uh, put them under wraps for for a little while. Did you? Uh, I, I'm not even sure I know the answer to this. Did, did the did the generals in any incarnation ever beat the uh, Harlem Globetrotters? To, to your knowledge? Well, yes. Or ev- evidently, it wasn't when I was there. I guess, but uh, hmm. uh, they had a situation. I think they they won a total of six games. But the one that comes to my memory was uh, the the uh, generals were winning by one. And they were supposed to throw an inbounds pass with about six seconds left. And Red Klotz, the uh, owner of our team, 
uh, somebody said something that really got upset him from the Globetrotters, and he didn't go with the program. He passed it in, we, and Globe uh, Generals ended up winning by one point. And, of course, there was a lot of meetings after the game. But you know what? That just shows that the Globetrotters are human. And uh, uh, they were very good players, though. I mean, they had uh, a couple of their guys. Well, Wilt used to play with the, the Globetrotters. Wilt, Connie Hawkins. That's uh, right. Gosh, uh, David Latin, who uh, played at Texas Western when he won the national championship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had some excellent ball players. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an unbelievable story. I mean, how old were you during that year when you traveled around the world with the Generals? I was, uh, it was 20, 22, 23 years old. And, um, you know, like I said, we played seven nights a week. Uh, some days we played double headers. For example, in New York City, we played Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, we had 22000 for each game. And uh, and we'd get a whopping $25 extra for playing the doubleheader for each game. <laughs> Did you, were those games at the at Madison Square Garden? Yes. So you played in some of the iconic stadiums in the, in the world for the for the All for the of them. So let all me, of them. All, yeah. the, all, the, all the NBA places, L.A., uh, Arizona, the Spectrum in Philadelphia, up in Buffalo. You know, we played, uh, you know, everywhere within all the major arenas. And we, we, you know, we sold out wherever we went. Um, when we were in London, we played at Wembley for 12 straight nights, and we sold out, I think, seventeen, eighteen thousand 18,000 a night over there. That's amazing. It is, it is utterly amazing. I want to I take you back a little bit and then bring it forward. With this basketball devotion that you, you manifested early in your life, I'm guessing that as a young youngster and then as a young adult, basketball took up enough of your time that you didn't have, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't have any substance abuse problems at that point, right? But it was basketball. That was your life, right? Oh, no. I was that all-American kid growing up. Uh, I met a kid when I uh, became a freshman in high school, and believe it or not, his name was Davy Crockett. And he took me under his wings, and uh, we just started playing ball all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and, And that's what I did because, you know, I loved it. I wasn't that good now. I wasn't that good. But due to practice and due to my efforts, you know, of, of working, lifting weights, uh, like I said, wearing weight jackets during the summertime, I'm running steps up at the high school uh, uh, football field uh, stadium while other people are maybe going out with their girlfriends, going down the shore. Not me. I was playing ball and I was working for my future. It's an, it is, it is an, it's an amazing story. Of course, um, this portion of Val's life should have, end, should have uh, concluded in uh, – uh, nothing but good memories to go around the world and play in front of audiences that large and along with the Harlem Globetrotters. But Al, unfortunately, uh, found himself at uh, some point in the grip of a serious, a serious substance abuse problem. Uh, we, we, Al, at what point during the uh, – well, you tell me. When did when did you first experiment with, with the – Okay, well, you know, uh, when I was in high school once, I, I, I drank a little alcohol and I got sick, so that ended that, uh, you know, adventure there. Uh, in college, after my after basketball was over, I think I may, might have uh, tried uh, marijuana once or twice. That was it. And that, that was it. And uh, I went and played basketball, worked hard, kept on going, went around the world with the Globetrotters. And then uh, after uh, the Globetrotters was finished, I had a tryout to go over to Europe and play professionally. They were starting a new league called the EBA, the European Basketball Association, which was like the NBA of Europe. And uh, a week before my tryouts, they canceled them, and they held a draft, and I went to Glassboro State. You don't get drafted from there. So I started working as a non-drinking, non-drugging bartender in Wildwood, New Jersey, and during the summer times. And then I would go down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida during the winters, non-drinking, non-drugging bartender. 
And when I was in Florida this one time when I was 27 years old, um, I received a telephone call that changed my whole life. All right, well, today. great. I want you to hold, yes. hold the thought. When we come back, we'll pick mm-hmm. up with the amazing story of uh, Big Al Zolak and uh, his now thir- over 30 years of sobriety. This is Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We are uh, on the phone with our guest, Big Al Zolak, his amazing story of his life in basketball. Uh, remember the Washington Generals, the, uh, the sort of punching bag for the famed Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, so, Al, the whirlwind tour, basketball is now out of your life, and I'm suspecting that loss of basketball may have contributed to some of the problems. But before we took the break, you mentioned that as you were bartending after your, your basketball career, um, that changed your life. You got a, f- a phone call from who? Wow. Tell us about that. Well, what, what happened? I was working in Florida at the time, and um, I received a telephone call that my mother had been taken to the hospital in Woodbury, New Jersey. And uh, my mother had had many heart attacks. She had about 15 heart attacks during the way. And uh, my assumption was, okay, she goes to the hospital, recovers, and comes back home. So that night after work, about 2.30 in the morning, I called the Underwood Hospital in Woodbury, and I asked for the condition of my mother. And they said, uh, we don't have anyone here by that name. And that was kind of strange to me. And then I told the lady who I was. I had a big name in Woodbury. My brother used to be a police officer. And uh, the lady came back to the phone. She said to me, said, I'm, hard, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but your mother passed away a couple hours ago. And uh, that's when I felt the emptiest feeling that I could possibly feel in my life. And just, uh, you know, uh, just so helpless and hopeless and just, just so devastated. And it led to uh, what sort of behavior, Al? Well, I, I, I came up to New Jersey and went to her funeral. I went back down to Florida. Of course, I was hurting because my mom was my best friend. And when I came down to Florida at that time, I went, went over to one of my so-called friend's houses. And my friend said, uh, here, Big Al, try some of this. This will help ease the pain that you're going through, help you escape reality for about a week or two. And I said to him, I said, what is it? He said, it's something called cocaine. Now, Steve, I never even heard of cocaine before this. And this is back in 1979. And I said, you know, my friend told me it would help me. So I tried it for the two weeks, but I found out my friend lied because my two-week escape turned into seven years of living hell, where it started off free because it was, it was given to me by a so-called friend. Then I realized you had to buy it. Then I realized how expensive it was. And then I myself turned into a big-time drug dealer where my own personal habit grew from being free to up to $1,000 a day at times. Needless to say, I am lucky to be alive, or better yet, I like to say somebody up there must really love me. Se- seven years of, uh, of hard, hard abuse. Were you surprised? I'm sure you are now. But during that process, when, when you know, this introduction leads to this acceleration of use, uh, abuse, criminality, because if you're selling drugs, were you, during that period of time, were you conscious that this thing had suddenly gotten out of control, or did it seem beyond your control. What, what was going through your mind? Well, it, you know, it, it, it started out, I had control over it, but then before you know it, it takes over your mind, it takes over your body, it takes over your soul, it takes over your life. And, and, and you know, I look back and I say, maybe I was trying to kill myself because, you know, of the pain that I was going through with, uh, uh, about my mother and all, and, and, and just, you know, it was just so devastating and just, you know, it just took over my life before I even realized it. I mean, the thing, the things that I went through, you know, I mean, there were times that I'd stay up, you know, of course, I'd stay up all night. I'd 
be standing by a window, peeking out the window for seven or eight hours in a row without even moving. The paranoia that was setting in on me, you know, I, I, I couldn't get out of my house to get something to eat because just as I would be reaching for that doorknob to get out of my house, I'd hear this little noise saying, yoo come here, and that was my pipe. That was my straw. That controlled my life. It, it just, just, just captured everything I had. You, you say this is a seven-year period of, of, of uh, decline in substance abuse. Between what ages, Al? Oh, gosh. It started at 27, between uh, 27 and uh, uh, 34, mm-hmm. 35. Mm-hmm. Well, in your, in your um, private life, what was going on? Were you in relationships? Did you, had you gotten married? What was going on? Uh, no, what, what had happened was, uh, you know, uh, I, I just didn't have any relationships, nothing like that. Uh, near the end of my addiction, ran, I, I, ran out of, I used to have a lot of friends, a lot of drugs, a lot of money. I ran out of drugs ran out of friends and ran out of money and I was about ready to be tossed out into the gutter with no place to live, nothing to eat, nowhere to sleep and that's when I said to myself, I better get a job. You see, I couldn't hold a job because at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning when most people are getting up to go to work, I was still trying to fall asleep because I was either drunk or high all night. But when I uh, stopped doing the drugs, I was able to get a job. I met a girl and I got engaged. Now, since all these great things were happening to me, Steve, I said to myself, you know what? You can go back out with your drinking and drugging just on Fridays and Saturdays for fun. So I started messing around with the drugs on Fridays and Saturdays instead of you know, going out with her. And then one day I walked into my apartment. She was sitting on my sofa with my ring in her hand, crying. And she said, here, pal, here's your ring back. Get out of my life. She said, I'm sick and tired of watching you destroy yourself. I'm sick and tired of watching you kill yourself. And I'm not going to let you destroy and kill me. When this young lady threw me out of her life, uh, three days later, I had to do the toughest thing that I ever had to do, Steve, and that was this. I went over to an older woman's house crying like a baby, and I said to this lady, I said, I've got a drug problem. She didn't give me a big lecture. She didn't scream and yell at me or nothing like that. She said, that's okay. She reached out to me. She gave me a hug and took me for help. That hug, you know, there's there no doubt in my mind if that lady would have yelled at me or screamed, you know, I wouldn't be here today. I would be dead. But she gave me that hug. She took me over to some, uh, a young girl's house who introduced me to different types of uh, support groups, and that's what I started doing. You know, it sounds trite. Uh, a hug changed your life. But, but, <laughs> but uh, tell how did it feel? I mean, were you not – you, you, it sounds like you're saying at the depths of your substance abuse, you, you had no idea that anybody cared or could help. Did, and that, did that hug represent for you – Somebody does care? Somebody will help me? Well, when I was doing drugs, Steve, I didn't care. You know, I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. I was, uh, you know, I wasn't living. I was existing. And that's, that's what I was doing. And then when I, when I got clean for a little bit and, and, and uh, uh, you know, this uh, awakening with my uh, fiancé just telling me to hit the road, you know, that was uh, a, a nudge in the right direction and, uh, and that hug and then taking me for, to someone who introduced me to different meetings and stuff like that enabled me to start uh, with my uh, recovery. And then I, I, had, I stayed clean for 30 days, Steve, and I felt like I had control over everything. And I went out and bought an eighth of cocaine for $250, came back to my house, and I chopped out one line. And that one line brought all those feelings, all those emotions, all that pain that disappeared back on my life. I took that $250 worth of Coke, went over to a toilet, and I flushed it down the toilet. And I'd rather flush that down the toilet than my life. And I went to a meeting that night for the first time for the right reason. Right. Not sure. to get my girlfriend back. Because I went for me. To get your life back. And that yeah. was just, 
yeah, get get my life back, right. and, and and that's what that's what I did. I started doing it for me and nobody else, and that's what I had to do. All right, Big Al Zolak is our guest. He, uh, as a professional athlete, was among the world's great losers, having, as I said, lost two hundred and forty-five games <laughs> against the Harlem Globetrotters. This is a story, though, about how he, as I said earlier, uh, rebounded from that and became an absolute winner, helping other people in similar situations with substance abuse. We have more with Al. Don't go away. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll return to our guest, Big Al Zolak, just ahead. But I want to remind you that the whole thing here is underwritten by our partners in this program, and that is Retreat Behavioral Health. They are world-renowned for helping people with both substance abuse issues and mental health issues as well. This, though, is not an infomercial for them. They're here uh, as an underwriter of the program because they want this uh, show to educate and inform people. If they can help you, uh, they 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 will because they've helped many, many people. But we give you their phone number in this context for any questions or comments you have about that wide area of behavioral health things going on in your life that are not helping you or hurting you emotionally, uh, psychologically, or even physically. Uh, they're there to answer the questions for you. So we give you the phone number in that spirit, 855-859-8810. Retreat Behavioral Health, 855-859-8810. Big Al Zolak is our guest. A great, great story about his uh, career as a a basketball player, his descent into substance abuse, seven years of uh, hell, thousands of dollars worth of uh, cocaine abuse, problems with the law, disintegration of relationships, the whole gamut of substance abuse and its results. So, Al, when you have that moment of clarity, when you realize this isn't working, your woman gives you a hug, you, you see that there's hope out there, you, um, you, you sought support in, in, in what way? Well, see, I never, I never had any knowledge, near, nor did I look for anything help at, at the beginning, and especially when I was doing drugs. And uh, this lady took me over to a young girl's house, and uh, the young girl ended up uh, turning me on to uh, a support program. And I got involved in the support program. And, you know, the funny thing is they drink a lot of coffee at these support programs. So I went up and got a cup of coffee. But when I drank coffee, it gave me the same effect that cocaine was. So I stopped drinking the coffee and, uh, you know, went to the meetings. I listened. I took their advice. I surrendered, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I, 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 everything that they said, I, I did, mm-hmm. you know, make so many meetings and so many days, you know, uh, no relationships in the first year, uh, just, uh, you know, um, you know, all the different things that they suggested, I consider them, I better do, I better do. And that's what I did. I followed it to, to, you know, uh, uh, yeah. to I'm, the T. I'm wondering about, about that process because there's so many people who say they're going to go, for instance, into the rooms if, if it's alcoholism mm-hmm. or, 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 um, harder substances and and uh, are given the program. Here's the, the steps you should follow. These are the things you should need to do. Many people find that difficult or resist it. I wonder to what extent your background as a as a very dedicated athlete helped you follow the program. Is that uh, the way you look at it? Well, I, I look back, you know, it, it was difficult, man. It wasn't easy because if it was easy, everybody would do it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I remember driving down the road, okay, saying to myself, okay, if I make a left-hand turn, I can go cop some drugs or, or I can – and what I would do, I'd drive straight home, 
get on the phone and call people who told me to call them for support. You know, whether it be come over, take me out for a, a, a soda or something, or just to talk to people, to let them know how bad that I wanted to use. So I needed someone to talk me off that ledge. And, 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 and it's through other people, you know, I'm a, I'm a mixture of so many different people in my life that have got me to the point that I am today. You know, it's not easy. It's very difficult, but I can tell you what, it's worth it. And Steve, I'm not proud of my past, but I'm proud as heck that I'm doing something about it. And that's all I can do. Uh, I refuse to live in the past now. Uh, I want to live for today and prepare myself uh, for the future. Listen, I'm 69 years old, Steve. I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. And while I'm here, I'm going to do whatever I can to try to help any other kid not go through the same pain and suffering that I went through. Well, I want to get into that because at some point, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, at some point during uh, the process where you're working on your life and your sobriety. um, Yes. And, and you're having more and more success at that. The 33-plus years proves that you're conscientious about uh, yeah, be, doing be, something right, I being think, yeah. sober. Yeah. Um, you um, rely, and I know this from conversations we've had in the past, you rely to a certain extent, maybe a major extent, on your uh, faith. T- tell us what role either spiritual spirituality or religion or God had in helping you, you know, keep it, keep it together. Yeah, well, well, see, during my first two years of recovery, when I look back, um, you know, God, the word God in the rooms always used to scare me, okay, because, you know, hey, way back when I thought it was God's gift to women, God's gift to this, and God's gift to that. And that was just my own ego getting in the way. But during the first two years, Steve, there was something missing in my life, and that was these in, internal good feelings. And, uh, um, you know, I, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And it's kind of funny because uh, where I was living, these two young ladies I ran into kept on inviting me out to their church. And it got to the point when I'd see them, I would go the other way because I didn't want to hear it. And finally, on January 29th, 1989, I woke up and I went to their church, and they had a guest speaker. His name was Jeff Fenholt, who used to sing with Black Sabbath, given his spiritual testimony. And at the end, he asked for people to uh, come up to the front if they wanted to accept the Lord. And guess, I, 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 didn't, I really didn't want to. I, I was looking around and said, what are these people going to think? But then I said, you know what? I need this. And I went up there, did that, and, uh, you know, broke down crying and accepted the Lord. Hey, and my life has never been the same. People say they find God. Listen, God was never lost. I was. I was. I was the one that was lost. And, uh, uh, you know, it helped me, uh, you know, get stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, You know, it's just, uh, you know, there's different things that I've read. Uh, where, you know, and and I consider myself still a rookie. This was 1989, and I'm still learning every day. And this is what has helped me get to where where I am today. I have a a wife that's, and and two kids that are very spiritual too, and uh, has has played a major portion building the strength. And I I like to listen to different things that are said. When I would sign autographed pictures, for kids, I would sign it, Mark 1027. All things are possible with God. That was my opinion, and that's how I feel. Yeah. You, you know, um, I mention this because uh, if you know anything at all about getting sober, um, only a fool would say that, that that stuff doesn't work or this doesn't work or that doesn't work. The truth of the matter is is that what whatever keeps you sober works for for you. And, yes. and, and for many, many people— uh, Faith is a key component in that. But there are many others who, re- you say you just recoiled at the notion that, that there was 
a God factor in this. What do you say to people who are resistant to that? Do you encourage them to open their heart to spirituality, or or do you let them find their own path? What's the what's the best way to go to overcome a prejudice like that? Well, you know, at the beginning, you know, I didn't want to hear that at the beginning. So, what the most important thing to me is to get that person into a program to let them recover a little bit. So, because then they can start thinking more clearly, start getting their, you know, living life on life's terms. And that could be pretty scary to a person who hasn't lived them on, on life's terms. But when, when we talk about spirituality, now it doesn't work, it doesn't work for everybody unless you apply what you learn. I have a brother-in-law that could probably recite the Bible to you, but, you know, um, he <laughs> has been using drugs for, you know, 30-some years, and we just got him into a rehab in, in Florida, and now he's been clean for two years. As long as he's ever been clean in his life, he went to a spiritual program, and now he's practicing what he has learned, and that's what we have to do. We have to practice. Now, if I'm talking to a kid, I don't mention it right away. I talk to him about getting, getting the assistance that he needs. Right, and I tell, I, I tell him my story. I, I, I open up to them before they open up to me because I want them to trust me. I'm an encourager. This is what worked for me. If you want to try it, fine. Yeah. You know, this is what I recommend. This is what you should do. And, 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 and that's why I try to be there to support them, uh, to be something maybe that they've never had. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this, a lot of times, it, it, it works because kids can see through garbage and bull. And uh, that's one of the greatest compliments I get from kids is that you're real. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I am. And well, I, you, I share my experience. I've, I've had a lot more experiences than drugs, other things that have happened to me in my life. And, uh, you know, I share this with people. Let me ask you about that. Uh, uh, at what point did you decide that you were going to do more than just uh, work on yourself? You were going to help other people? I know you spent many years uh, in, in schools as a drug advisor and counselor. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, I started out speaking in schools uh, early uh, after my recovery because uh, you know, the first time I spoke was on March 7th of uh, many years ago, and that was my mother's birthday. The second time I spoke, it was the day that my mother death. That's how dates work out sometimes. But I put together a program called Do Hugs, Not Drugs, and I started speaking in schools. And, and the reaction I was getting from kids, because I was real, and I, and I mean, after my program, kids would start crying and open up. I've had kids give me drugs, give me all different types of things. Schools didn't want me way back then because I was opening kids up and they were left to deal with it. And I did that for many years. And I spoke at a high school in uh, Hamilton, New Jersey. Uh, many years ago, and they sought me out to be their drug counselor there, and I took the job there because I wanted to try to help you know more kids, and I was the drug counselor there. You know, I've been drug counselor for sixteen years. Sixteen years in the uh, in the Hamilton school system as a drug counselor. How have yes. the uh, characterized the kids over that period of time? Their uh, sub- their substance abuse choices changed during that period, didn't they? Well, yeah, kids, kids, kids are kids, and, and, and uh, you know, Steve, 30 years ago, I used to speak about heroin, okay, and people looked at me like I had two heads. Look where we are now. See, I was in the trenches, and I knew what was going on with most of, you know, most of the situations. Uh, people thought it was a, uh, a minority problem. Uh, the only person that did heroin, you'll find a guy with a spike in his arm in Camden or something like that, and that was the furthest thing from the truth. You know, drugs do not discriminate. They don't care if you're white, black, purple, yellow. They don't care if you're tall, short, fat, skinny. They don't care if you're from Society Hill, Cherry Hill, or Blueberry Hill. That's one factor. Drugs will not discriminate about hurting people. And the kids that I talked to, you know, I would just open up, I mean, from kids that wanted to uh, commit suicide, kids that wanted to, you know, do different things, and I would encourage them 
to get the assistance that they need. And and I, I, for some reason, the, the kids would you know uh, um, come to me, and because they trusted me, you know, kids don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's a you know it's a cliche and all, but that's the truth. And I've, I've even had kids come to me and say, well, I said, why don't you go to the guidance counselors and all? Well, they haven't been through it like I have. I said, well, wait a minute. You can learn from them people that did not do drugs. Maybe they can give you something of why they didn't do drugs. You can learn how not to do drugs mm. from these people. Yeah. See, nobody has this, this single answer. I, I, you know, I wish I did, but you know, through a, a lot of people working together, we can make a difference in this world. But years ago, Nobody wanted to deal with these issues. Schools were in such denial. Not my school, not my kid, not my neighborhood. And that's a bunch of bunch of crap. Well, those days are over. Those days are over for yeah. sure. Al Zolak is our guest. Uh, he he's uh, as he just said many many years in the school school system in Southern New Jersey, uh, counseling uh, youngsters and drugs. He's uh, about to retire from that, but his work helping others uh, is not ending. We'll be back with um, with more from uh, Big Al Zolak. Straight ahead on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano uh, with you. And uh, we want to thank, um, before we forget, our guest, uh, Al Zolak, uh, Big Al. He is a retired American basketball player whose claim to fame <laughs> is that one year, his team, the Washington Generals, traveling uh, in, an ex- as an, in an exhibition capacity with the famed Harlem Globetrotters, lost all 245 games that year. Remarkable losing streak, which, um, which Al has turned into a, a, a tremendous win streak. He's over 33 years now sober after a tough, tough time with substance abuse. He dedicated his life to helping other people, particularly young people, um, who, who you know are facing the same kinds of problems today, um, even worse than when Al was abusing drugs. He is the founder of something called uh, Do Hugs Not Drugs, where he talks to kids about the road to sobriety and what it's meant to him. And he's, as I said just before the break, now you're getting ready to retire from uh, from your uh, professional life, but you're you're not done with your work. Let me ask you about a couple of things here that the show is sort of dedicated to. It's not so much talking directly to people in a substance abuse issue, although we do that, but there's a broader audience out there, and that's the loved ones, family members, even friends of people who you know, are at crisis, particularly young people. What advice can you, can you give people who are concerned about young people today and the temptations and problems that could happen? How do you get through to young people? Well, as far as parents are concerned, what they should be doing? Yep. Well, okay. Uh, an example, uh, you know, I, I married the same girl who threw me out of her life many years ago. It took me three years to get her back, and we had two children. Both our kids uh, had some things at birth where they almost died. And, uh, uh, you know, I look back at my drug usage, and I said, was it my fault? And uh, these are things that I share with kids. I, I think that parents, if they're concerned with their kids, they should open up and be honest with their kids. Uh, my two girls, for example, Carolina and Olivia, as they were growing up, I told them, look, your grandmom uh, was an alcoholic, your granddad was an alcoholic, your other grandmom was an alcoholic, your dad was a drug addict. You're not swimming in too good of a gene pool, okay? <laughs> so you may not be like Mary or Johnny down the street who didn't have these things going in their family. You could become addicted a lot quicker and a lot easier, even if you just try it. So I would advise you not to try it. Don't do any research. 
just learn from what I've been through. You know, it's interesting, uh, it's interesting I, that you mentioned that, it, that you were very open about your, your family history with substance abuse. I would guess some people would want to keep that a dark family secret. It's a mistake to do that, right? Oh yeah, and the only thing it's going to do if you if you if you don't tell your kids, it's 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 going to be detrimental. It's not going to be helpful. You know, we've all made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. So I mean, ad- admit it. There's no shame in that. Hey, listen, you're doing something about it. I I tell parents this. You know, be open and honest with your kids. Okay. And what I would do is I would get a drug test kit and stick it on your refrigerator, and you say, you know what? If you have concerns, if the wind's blowing wrong one day, I might just have you pee in this cup. Okay. And, and this way, they can use this as a deterrent when they're out with their friends saying, oh, man, my mom. Or, let, let them use you as an excuse not to participate with their so-called friends, you know, that uh, you don't want to get in trouble. You know, uh, my mom might test me. Uh, they, they need these deterrents, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of peer pressure going on out there that uh, uh, helps the kids uh, go in the, in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. Um especially if they're, if they're really not strong yeah. emotionally. Al, when you were counseling in the school system, what were the age of the uh, young people you were dealing with? Well, I, would, I was dealing with uh, middle school all the way up to high school. Okay, uh, middle school. So we're talking uh, 11, 12 years old. Right. I mean, Steve, I've been to funerals of 10-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids, uh, huff, from huffing gasoline to uh, uh, a girl went to a party, got drunk, five guys took advantage of her. The next day in school, they're calling, all, calling, calling her all these nasty names. She goes home, gets her father's gun, puts it to the side of her head, blows her brains out. So, I mean, there's so many different things that are out there. You know, when, when it comes to suicide, if I could just touch on that. Yeah, go ahead. What makes, these, what makes these kids feel like hurting themselves is other people. What other people do to them, what other people say about them, how other people treat them. And I tell kids, you know how to get even with these other people? You live you let them know that you're going to be around as long as possible to really make their lives miserable. You don't hurt yourselves. <laughs> you know, it's only a, it's only a thought at that time. Yeah. Well, so let me, in your experience, um, how early on in, in a, in a uh, child's life are they able to handle this conversation? I mean, you're talking about 10, 11-year-olds. Can, can you start the conversation that, that young? I would start it younger and younger and younger, and I'll tell you why. Hey, they're learning all these things from social media, younger, younger, and younger. I guess one of the, one of the, one of the stories that I, I ran into a, a young lady one day, uh, this is years ago. I used to put up posters in, in, in our area on these different businesses, you know, do hugs, not drugs. And um, I went to the post office, and a guy said to me, he said, Al, I used to think those posters were a joke until I was down by Kmart, and I saw this lady stop and read the poster with her little five-year-old kid saying, do hugs, not drugs, and giving her a big hug. He says, you know what? That's when I realized all these little messages are worth it. If you can help one person, it's worth it. Well, Al, it's a remarkable story you have. And I know even though you're retiring, you're not done this work. You're available, no. to, you're available to speak in front of groups, and you, 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 know, you're, you're, you do some counseling uh, yourself. How do people get in touch with you if they want more information? Well, just one thing. I... I, I, I uh, develop my speech for the, my audience. I change it appropriately, whether it be a church, whether it be different organizations, whether it be kids, whatever, whatever. I adjust it. But you can get in touch with me. You can either email me at the number 32bigal at comcast.net. That's 32bigal at comcast.net. Or uh, call me on my, it's a landline, uh, so I still live in the 60s, 856 um, 478 <laughs> Six zero three zero eight five six four seven eight 
6030. Yeah, no. I'm going to be speaking, in, retiring, speaking in churches, speaking to whoever I can. I run basketball camps over here in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. I'm just, as long as I'm here on earth, I'm going to do the best I can uh, because I know I'm, uh, the man upstairs has a purpose for me to be alive and I'm going to serve that purpose. Al Zolek, thanks so much. It's a great story. We'll have you back real soon, I hope. Thank you. God bless you. Thank, all right. you. Thank, thank you all for joining us on Recovery Radio. Don't forget, brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health. Again, if you need information, somebody you know needs help, give them a call, 855-859-8810. 855-859-8810. See you next time on Recovery Radio. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.